So Stuart, on the 2nd of November, you hosted UK Ed Res Chat. I did. And it was making it stick. So implementation. Implementation of what? Reminders, please. Yeah, so uh, implementation of interventions, strategies, approaches that are based upon robust research evidence. Okay. And 140 characters in 30 minutes um, was limiting in terms of the fullness of the responses that we're able to give. So you felt there was a bit of unfinished business and Mm. we're going to go back to some of the questions and answer them in a bit more detail. Yes, that's what we're going to do. Let's do that now. Okay. So let's start. Uh, There's a uh, get straight stuck in with uh, a point that Rob Webster raised, mm, yeah. which was ensuring you focus on addressing actual needs and gaps and not perceived needs and gaps or pet fancies. Mm. So how do we go about doing that? Good question. Um, and ultimately, this is a question that is about high quality information. And that might be in the form of um, you know, data in school, um, uh, professional judgment, but um, high quality uh, information which is fit for purpose and reliable. So, you know, if we're talking about putting in place um, strategies that are de- designed to improve uh, reading comprehension, for instance, well, we, we need to make sure that the reason for doing that is, you know, a really strong one and that it's born out of a real need and not simply a perception. Um, you know, I often think about those who shout loudest. Um, get get heard and you know in um, in staff rooms and uh, you know in schools in general sometimes it's those who are shouting the most loudly uh, to whom we listen um, simply so that they don't shout loudly anymore and that's not necessarily um, because there's a real need that needs to be addressed there um, so working through some simple steps um, asking okay what 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 is the real problem what's happening here um, and and, and tr- trying to crystallize it and really refine it down to you know not just something that is bothersome but a really precise thing and then following up by asking is it really happening is it actually a problem or is this a perception um, and what's the what's the true nature of that so really you know Rob's right um, for focusing on real needs and gaps and not these perceived ones or simply pet projects is an incredibly important starting point for good implementation Next question, or next point, Mark Enser uh, said we need to first have a clear understanding of the underpinning theories and not just the strategies. So um, what does Mark mean by that, do we think, and can you elaborate on what we mean by the theory Mm. and not just the strategy? Well, um, I think what he means is that... uh, in order to be able to adapt to the the changing, you know, the really dynamic situation of a of a classroom, um, you've got to have something to fall back on that is more than just you know a, a recipe of you know do X Y and Z in this order because you know that that will only ever get you so far and you've got to be able to adapt. Um, and adaptation is, I think, one of the kind of hallmarks of of a professional. Um, and, and as such, that has to be based on some kind of really firm anchor. Um, and for us, that anchor is really, really strong theory. Um, so that if you know that theory really, really well, um, you're able to make decisions uh, you know, um, mid-flow um, about what happens next, you know, how to apply the particular intervention or whatever, how to adapt it um, sensibly. Without that, you, know, you have no guide, no anchor point at all.
So that's why it's really important to have that under, underpinning theory um, and not just, you know, a sort of uh, an A4 sheet with uh, really kind of bright ideas on it. So you're saying it's not just a case of saying we're going to do um, a f- feedback. Mm. It's it's knowing in what conditions yeah. um, that was successful exactly. or effective. Yeah, I mean, it's going right the way back to having a, an understanding of, um, you know, not just the what, but under what circumstances, um, you know, in what context, what, what were the kind of necessary elements um, for the success of a particular approach or intervention. Um, but also I think that, you know, for me, if I were talking to a teacher in a classroom, I'd, I'd want to be able to answer and then, uh, sorry, ask and then get really um, good answers to the questions, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? What impact does it have? And how do you know? And if you don't have an understanding of theory, well, you really can't answer the question, why are you doing it, other than to say, because the piece of paper that I'm looking at told me so. Yeah, it's a justification in some ways. Yeah. Okay, next uh, we had a comment from Kerry Pauline, and she made the point that we need a much narrower focus, but it's often difficult to pick out from the thousand of things you need to do. So, mm. yeah, how do you how do you um, ensure that you've got clarity of purpose and the focus? Yeah. Well, actually, in part, this goes back to uh, what um, Mark Enson was talking about with regard to having a strong sort of underpinning theory, uh, because you know what what is your guide to making those decisions? Uh, you know, out of all the thousand things that that teachers do. Um, to ensure that that, fo- that that focus really is narrowed down. How do you actually make that choice? And so theory is going to be a really important part of that. But Kerry's point about having a, um, the, this need for a narrow focus um, really is, one, because, well, we can't do everything. But also, um, if you're going to you know, implement something that is based upon research evidence, then um, it, it has to be really well-defined and very, very um, clearly understood for you truly to say that you're actually doing that thing. Um, and so uh, a, a really kind of narrow focus on, you know, on a small number of um, you know, variables, if you like, and um, strategies is, I think, um, a kind of incredibly difficult thing to do. But it's, um, it's necessary if you're going to have any kind of sense of success at implementing a particular thing. What I find people do an awful lot is they will say, we're going to improve feedback or we're going to we're doing metacognition or we're doing self-regulation or whatever it is. Um, and those are enormous areas. You know, there's all kinds of different types of feedback and what have you. And so refining it down to you know one specific element of feedback, you know, verbal feedback in class for the purpose of whatever it might be, and really, really making that as precise and clearly delineated as possible, actually um, is one of the kind of characteristics of successful implementation. So Gary Jones, Dr. Gary Jones, um, mentioned the PDSA cycle, the Plan, Do, Study, Act uh, approach in barrier identification. So why might we identify barriers and how can we go about doing it? Um, so we want to identify barriers so that we can more, you know, well, we can predict what's going to get in the way and then hopefully mitigate against those things getting in the way. Um, and yeah, the, so the PDSA cycle, you know, is, is one form of that. And there are, you know, other ways of going about this. Um, well, I'm really interested in approaches to kind of human centered design. Um, so there are great sort of um, tools that you'll find 
from um, organisations like, um, I never know how to pronounce it, IDEO or IDEO or whatever. But anyway, they have a, a really interesting um, tool for, for that kind of purpose. But essentially, um, for me, barrier identification really starts with understanding not just the, you know, the problem that you're trying to um, solve or the situation you're trying to improve, but the true context in which it exists. Um, because a lot of the barriers to successful implementation are, you know, they're in existence right here and right now. Um, and, and some of them are very, very mundane. Um, and it might be, uh, you know, for instance, that uh, somebody's going to, um, I don't know, they perhaps uh, they have to um, go off uh, for an operation or something like that. So they're going to be off school for a period of time. Perhaps they have other responsibilities that they're going to have to take over that will mean that they don't have the time to focus on doing a certain thing. Um, maybe certain resources cannot be released in order to, you know, uh, to implement successfully. Um, so identifying these things, um, you know, before we launch into something one um, you know helps us to um, increase the chances of success um, but also um, increase the chances of saying no we can't do this if we recognize that the barriers are both you know in place and insurmountable um, and from that point of view it, it helps you know to to make the decision making process you know really quite efficient um, you know if you if you just can't do it well you can't do it yeah and um so Huntington Research um, mentioned mm. doing a, a pre-mortem. Yes. And um, that's one of the things that you can do to identify these yeah. barriers. Yes, that's right. Um, and the notion of a pre-mortem is, is not something that I invented. And I don't, I don't know exactly who invented it, but I know I can tell you where I've, I got it from. And if you're interested, highly recommend uh, the work of Nancy Cartwright and Jeremy Hardy. Um, and the book that I read that had this pre-mortem idea in was uh, called Evidence-Based Policy Making. And I've got other hobbies as well, but, you know. <laughs> um, and, and so they talk about pre-mortem as basically a tool that puts you in a position where you look ahead um, to the implementation of your approach, whatever it might be. And, and then at that point of it being implemented, it's failed. And you put yourself mentally in that position of, uh, of, of the failure of your intervention, your strategy. And then the pre-mortem says, why did it fail? List all of the plausible causes of that failure. What are the things that, um, that prompted it to go wrong? And in doing so, you then approach barrier identification in a slightly different way. Um, you know, without doing that, we kind of work on this rather joyous, optimistic assumption that it's all going to be fine, it'll work. Um, with the pre-mortem, we put ourselves firmly in the position that everything has gone wrong. Um, and so, uh, using pre-mortem, very, very simple, um, uh, but a really, really effective tool. And it all just revolves around that question, you know, um, uh, acknowledging that it's failed, why did it fail? Yeah. Um, and once you've got that kind of list, you've then got a starting point to say, how can we mitigate against some of these things from yeah. causing our failure? And in my experience, it's often good for collaboration. There's no shortage of suggestions as to why things might absolutely go wrong. Yes, it's it's a good thing to do without uh, you know egos in the room and, and things like that. So you've got to you've got to have a fairly frank and open um, discussion. Okay, um, Huntington Research School yeah. um, made the point of, and I guess this relates back to um, to some extent the focus and the purpose. 
But um, Huntington said you've got to know it being implemented. Uh, you've got to make sure everyone agrees on what it is and describe it and model it and then mm. evaluate it yes. as you go. Yes. I'm assuming that it was um, Alex Quigley behind uh, the, the Huntington Research School tweet. Um, and um, Alex, if you're listening to this, I love your use of asterisks in that tweet. I can count one, two, three, four, five, six. There's, there's about 28. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, what is this idea about it being implemented? This goes back to the notion of clear definition and clear delineation as to precisely what is happening. And it's not about we're doing feedback. It's not about, you know, those, those kind of um, abstract notions and, and working on the assumption that everybody understands what you're talking about. It's being really, really rigorous in explaining precisely the ins and outs of things and of testing your assumption by questioning people and testing it and you know, trialing things out so that you can actually see that what they're doing is the thing that you know, you, you've designed or that is supposed to be implemented. Um, having agreement on what it is and describing it and modelling it and you know, having exemplars um, you know, it's really good practice in helping move from you know an idea that's often just in one person's head to a shared uh, understanding and then a shared implementation of it. But also um, in that same tweet, uh, uh, you know, the, the Huntington Research School suggestion, maybe the Alex Quigley suggestion, was to evaluate it as well as, as you go, to um, hold in your head a kind of a healthy scepticism that is really kind of um, try, trying to ascertain impact um, uh, you know, during the process of implementation. Uh, because you've actually, actually you've got to be prepared to acknowledge that things might go wrong, um, and they might go wrong quite early on and you need to stop things. Um, uh, but more than anything, that notion of building evaluation in early, um, I think is really important in good implementation, because um, actually having an evaluation you know, looming there as part of your process um, is something that I think can really, um, you know, galvanise the the thinking around good implementation because actually people want it to work, generally speaking, um, and if there is a sense that you're going to know whether or not it has worked, it kind of really can strengthen your case, I think. Yeah, and what I like about this, uh, this point is, I think, um, well, it just warns against um, mission creep yeah. or, or drift. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's quite healthy to just remind people, we're all adults, but just because you've explained something once to someone yeah. doesn't mean that we're so, going to remember exactly what it is and yes. how we're doing it. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of of, um, of regular reminders about yeah, what yeah, it is that yeah, we're doing yeah. and um, phrases like for the avoidance of doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. I've noticed this in your yeah. emails. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, te- teachers, particularly when... Uh, you know, you're working effectively kind of in, a, in, a, in an isolated way as a teacher within a class, then, you know, it's very easy to, you know, kind of put your own spin on things, to tweak, to adapt, to add, amend as you're going along. But if you do that in a way that then is, um, you know, not, not recorded, is not really transparent, um, then when it comes to the evaluation side of things, to try to understand something about the impact of what has happened, well, whatever you find... Um, is you know is an impact uh, the you know the, the the cause of which is not really known because there have been all these kind of tweaks and amendments that have gone along after the kind of planning and design phase um, and before the evaluation is completed but nobody's really sure exactly what was happening 
And if we're then going to learn from this kind of process, from evaluations, um, and you know, share what we've learned with other people, we want to be able to say, we did this, mm. and the impact was this. Yeah, because otherwise you're going to evaluate something that is different to what you said. Yeah, to do in the you're actually place. just evaluating a giant question mark. Nobody knows what you did. Another um, topic within the, the chat, the conversation, was leadership. And for me, this is very much um, multifaceted. So um, if we could address first, I think, leadership buy-in, how mm-hmm. we might do that, and then we look at um, leadership of the actual project itself. Okay. So leadership buy-in. Yeah. How, how can we go about getting buy-in? Okay. So I'm assuming what you're talking about is you know, um, senior leaders, for instance, and you know, trying, to, trying to get them on board with... What we're, what we're proposing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, for a start, uh, in, in my experience, and I think that this is something that is, is reiterated in, um, in the literature on this, that um, getting good, strong leadership support is really important. But um, I think that uh, there has to be a sense, a really strong sense, actually, of value um, presented to anybody for them to invest in something. I mean, you know, as, as human beings, um, if there is uh, a, a notion that we're going to achieve something that is valuable both personally and collectively, then we're more likely to kind of buy into it. So for senior leaders, well, what are the things that are of value? Um, and at a school level, it's always going to come down to, you know, pupil outcomes, um, uh, you know, teachers' professional development and, you know, um, uh, workload and, and such like, and then um, efficiency. Um, and those things often, you know, tie in together, but, you know, uh, schools are operating with you know, restricted budgets, um, there's an awful lot of pressure on um, teachers uh, and schools to, to produce good results and such like. So if we're going to put anything in place, um, getting senior leader buy-in um, has to come back to is it you know is it a really best bet in terms of something that's effective in improving pupil outcomes and is it efficient in doing so? And I think if you can make a strong case around those two things, um, I'd be surprised to see an argument against the implementation mm, yeah. of, of what you're proposing. And that goes along with what Mark said um, yeah. about being clear on the school's priorities so that the, the two match up. Absolutely. So it is not to devalue the exercise to some extent a tick box exercise you've got to think about who you're pitching this idea to yep. and their perspective there's got to be alignment and i and i think that you know the um i really dislike the term you know co-creation but mm. you know really what we're talking about is people working together um to identify school priorities um and you know school priorities are generally problems to be solved and then thinking creatively about how to solve those problems and so um, Mark Enser is absolutely right, I think, in having um, real clarity over what those things are um, and then um, ensuring that there's, you know, there's alignment at a senior level, middle leaders, right the way through to teachers, teaching assistants and, and students um, to then um, galvanise around uh, you know, a best bet approach that we're going to put in place to try to improve important things. Yeah, and that aligns also with Kerry's point, which is about providing collaboration opportunities. So. Yep. Um, what is the wider value of, of this in terms yeah. of the school community and, yeah. and involvement yeah. at all sorts of levels? And actually, it's, that's, it's an interesting point that, um, that, that Kerry makes there uh, because 
you know, we know from the, uh, the evidence around teachers' uh, professional development that uh, collaboration and experimentation are important in those instances. And if what's going to be implemented is something that is, you know, really new, is a, a, a new strategy or whatever, then the time to, for teachers to, you know, really get used to it, to embed the practice um, is, is, I think, uh, an important feature of good implementation. You've got to kind of take these things uh, fairly steadily often um, and the, the metaphor that I, I often think of is that we're we're trying to to turn um, you know an oil tanker and not a speedboat here so we have to have that long view all right uh, well one of the points that I made mm. and you didn't give me an answer okay um, <laughs> sorry about that probably because it was me um, so we talked about um, or I, I, I talked about leadership of the project itself yeah. and distributing roles and I think mm. all too often there is a danger of um, of these interventions these projects becoming a one person project yeah it's led by one th- enthusiastic person yeah, yeah, yeah. who who um, not necessarily wants to do it all but gets left doing it all how, how do you lead a project in a way that brings people along with you yeah yeah um, okay well so I think this is um, you know, what if you, if we've got some kind of leadership buy-in at a senior leader level, um, leading the project and distributing, you know, clearly have to be attended to, and you're right that the potential for it to become the sort of, um, you know, the, the 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 preserve of one interested individual who you know plows their furrow um, alone, it you know is is really quite strong, particularly if it's something that's actually quite you know, difficult to do, might appear a little bit esoteric. Yeah. But hopefully, um, you know, we can perhaps uh, mitigate against some of that by getting that strong leader, senior leader buy-in to, to a project and then have those people kind of advocating, uh, you know, on, on behalf of the project. Um, but uh, there are a couple of things, I think, that um, are associated with kind of se- successful um, leadership of the project directly. Um, one is having you know uh, clarity of, of of the ultimate goal and then the process leading towards that goal, um, having a strong sense of the sort of um, the uh, underpinning support factors that are going to be necessary to put in place all of the you know the bits of time, resource, training, whatever it might be in order for the, the project to be successful, um, and then to a certain extent um, uh, a distribution of roles, but I think not too much. Um, I've seen uh, quite large groups try to take on projects, and by large I mean you know uh, maybe uh, six, seven, eight people working on uh, the design and implementation of mm. uh, of a particular um, intervention. And um, in in some ways that can be actually quite unhelpful because um, unless you've got really really strong leadership of that group. Um, everybody thinks that it's somebody else's responsibility to get something done. Um, there sometimes feels like there's quite a lot of doubling up. You know, if you're designing the, you know, the, the something around the implementation or the training of it, and you know everybody else is kind of pitching in, it seems a little bit of a kind of flabby model. It mm. needs to be a, a lot more uh, kind of lean and focused. Um, and and then um, also, I think that it's probably quite important to have somebody involved. Who is the kind of you know the the person who calls you out, who checks your sense? Um, because when you're if you're leading a project like this, you generally are really invested in it and want it to work. And if you want it to work, you'll often go to you know the nth degree to ensure that it does. And that's okay to an extent. But then you've got to think to the life after this 
this point where you know maybe you move school you get or you retire or you get promoted or whatever it is and you're no longer part of the implementation how does it work then if you're not there so the leadership of um of, of the implementation of something you know of a, of a strategy in and of itself you know has to think about the sustainability aspect of of you know you withdrawing from that and whether or not it can have a life successfully in the wild if you like all right Going to another point made by Huntington Research, slash Alex Quigley, maybe. <laughs> um, they made the point uh, about teachers and school leaders needing training, not just on evidence, but project planning, implementation, and um, particularly bias and, and human limitations. And mm. there was someone else, I think Mark mentioned, yeah. um, pride and, and uh, yeah, pre-existing yeah. beliefs Personal, getting in the way of yeah, things. Yeah. So how, how can we navigate that? Okay. Um, first off, I, I, I must say, if, if it wasn't Alex who was actually tweeted, sorry to whoever it was. <laughs> um, but okay, so what do we, um, we need to do then for, for teaching school leaders to, you know, to, get, to get groups at this? Well, one, yeah, tra- training on you know, the use of evidence is, is, I think, really, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a, a, a dark art at the moment, to be honest. There's no clear definition over exactly what you know, um, uh, engaging with research, you know, looks like there's no consensus over what research engagement is. There are lots of different ways into this. But I think what is clear is that, you know, as with anything, unless you have some kind of firm grounding in the, um, you know, the, what, what looks like good quality evidence, what's less good quality, what is fit for purpose, what's not, and so on, um, then your starting point is, is always going to be a really, really kind of uh, cloudy one. Um, so there's there's training on that that's needed, but also I think the thing that's um, massively relevant here is training on project planning and implementation. As a teacher, where does that come from? You know, who's who's had um, project management implementation training? Um, and there's an awful lot that's known about successful. Um, implementation from lots and lots of other fields, from engineering, um, you know, in science, there's lots known. Um, but where do we get that as teachers? Um, and I know that there's there's um, material coming out from the Education Endowment Foundation, um, uh, uh, from uh, partly uh, the work of Jonathan Sharples and others, um, and that will be really really important, mm. I think. Um, but at the moment, where do you get it from? Mm. And likewise, that you know these um, uh, biases. Um, you know, I, I think of human beings as basically you know, walking bags of bias. We are full of it. And um, sometimes it's, it's very difficult to acknowledge precisely what those biases are for you know, any, any one of us. But if you are the person who is you know, leading the development of, um, uh, or, or the implementation of a particular um, approach in which you are you know, massively invested, mm-hmm. well... You know, r- right there, you are. You know, you're you're carrying around um, a really strong sense of bias, which is, you know, why I suggested earlier that having somebody who is the kind of dispassionate parry to your mm. enthusiasm, you know, there's almost uh, uh, kind of like a, a a positive role for a naysayer. Yeah. Um, who'd have thought? Um, to just to keep those things in check, but you know, in, in terms of evaluation methodology, we always talk about the notion of equipoise, of remaining, you know, in a state of you know balance around. Well, is is this thing actually you know uh, proving effective and efficient or not? Um, and uh, I, I think you know, acknowledging bias and human limitation 
is is um, you know it's a, it's a massively productive thing in successful implementation. So one of the resources you posted during the chat was um, East. You say you're a big fan of East. Yes. Do you wanna do you wanna explain yourself? Um, <laughs> well, uh, that's kind of you to ask. Uh, yeah. So uh, I am a fan of. Um, the well, I suppose the behavioural science as a as a kind of um, a, an area of research, uh, and particularly the work of the behavioural insights team, um, which was a um, it's actually a, a, a spin out from the cabinet office. Um, and one of the things that they uh, have published over recent years, I can't remember exactly when it was published, um, is this document East, which basically says that. Um, one of the ways in which you can help people to make better decisions more easily, to change their, their behaviours, their habits, um, is to try to make it easy, attractive, social and timely. Um, and, you know, if, if you sit back and think about that for a moment, well, um, that doesn't sound too much like rocket science, but actually um, there, there's pretty strong underpinning in uh, research evidence around the effectiveness of trying to remove uh, what, are, what are called the friction costs associated with people changing what they do. And if you think about implementation as being, you know, starting a new thing, changing a practice, um, then that, that means that you've got to in some way shift from perhaps mm. what has become habitual. So how do we do that? Mm. And so presenting things in ways that it's, it's, you know, it's easier for people to engage with stuff, that actually there is some kind of value and attraction to it, um, that it involves you know, um, interaction with other people in some ways. And that might not just you know, be directly with other people, but might just be knowing something about what other people like you do in these circumstances. Um, and then the timeliness of it, so that there is a real kind of relevance to what you're trying to do. Um, generally speaking, um, uh, there seems to be uh, a fairly strong sense from the literature that combining those features um, gives uh, a, a greater chance of successful implementation. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm a, a fan of it. I think there's a huge amount that education can learn from mm. behavioural science, and we're only really starting to you know, toy around with applying it um, in, in, in education. Uh, but ultimately, uh, so much of education is about behavioural change, be yeah. that for students or for teachers. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that we can learn from the world of you know, behavioural economics and behavioural science more, more broadly. So yeah. That's why I like it. And it's fascinating, I think. I mean, in life, we have to win people over mm -hmm. to achieve the things we want to achieve. And this is a tool yeah. that's quite helpful in doing so. And, and you know, what, what we kind of know from um, neuroscientific research is that uh, the human brain is not all that great at thinking. Mm. Yeah. It actually kind of dislikes thinking. Um, and so if, if, if that is a real feature of the implementation um, process, if people actually have to think incredibly hard about things, then... Um, in and of itself, that may be a factor that reduces um, the the success of, of the of, of the uptake of it. If what we're trying to do is just to get them to do some things, yeah. you know, if what we're trying to do is to get them to think hard about something, then actually we want them to do that. Yeah. But um, identifying those barriers, as we said earlier, and then coming up with ways of making it easier, attractive, and social and timely for people to engage in it, um, you know, it, they, these are. Uh, I, I, 
I, I love a good metaphor. You know I love a metaphor. Um, but I think about it... Stand by. Yeah, here we go. Um, this, this one's a sporting metaphor. Um, uh, it's about loading the bases. You know, about planning ahead to try to make it easier to achieve your aim of a home run implementation. There that was it. pretty bad, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. But that, that's fine, that's, that's, why we like, that's why we like him. Okay, so we're going to round it up now. Um, have you got, succinctly, Yes. Uh, five top tips for implementation? As it happens, yes. Good. Almost as if... Well, we yeah. thought about this in yeah. advance. Just a little bit. Okay, top tips. Top tip number one for successful implementation, making it stick. Um, some of these will seem a bit kind of common sense, but... Here we go. So number one, um, clarify precisely what you are intending to achieve. Know what you want to achieve, uh, what you want to achieve, and then ascertain who does what, by when, how. Number two, um, identify the support factors. Um, f- you know, really work through using a pre mortem and and, you know, and other tools to try to pin down precisely what are the things that are going to make the success of your implementation more likely. Mm. Be that training, resources, um, senior leadership buy-in, external expertise, whatever it might be, but pin those things down and then try to um, ensure they're there. Because the way I think of it is that um, those support factors are the, the oxygen that's needed to both to bring and then to sustain life to the implementation of, of whatever we're, we're looking at. Um, so number three, um, collaborate. Um, find a friend, but also maybe you know collaborate with uh, those people who are uh, you know really skeptical. Um, quite good to keep keep you in check. Um, and again, another, you ready for another metaphor? No. Yeah, another. You're gonna squeeze yeah. another one. I am. <laughs> um, hey, I used to be an English teacher. Um, so collaborating with colleagues, but start small. You know, with those people who are you know going to help you to get things moving. So start with you know turning acorns into oaks. There's the metaphor. Yeah. Neat, eh? Um, you know, and, and as we've talked about before, you know, gain the trust and support of a of a senior leader who's going to you know help to sort of advocate on your behalf uh, and on the project's behalf. Uh, number four, do a pre mortem. Um, and then five, plan um, an an evaluation. Um, hopefully, if you're thinking really deeply about implementation, then evaluation should be on your, your radar already. But it, it's still, um, well, I think I've gone beyond being surprised by how little evaluation is a part of education. But um, uh, still, I, I long for the day when everybody's planning evaluations all over the place. <clears throat> so yeah, five things. Clarify, identify, collaborate, do a pre-mortem, plan evaluation. Jobs are good. Excellent. Thank you very much. And to anyone who is playing the Stuart Kine metaphor bingo, who had five? (laughs) Thanks, Stuart. Thanks.